Well, welcome. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 32 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and uh, with me here is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Hello, PVO. G'day, Hugh. 32. We're, 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 we've gone right past my age. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Um, <laughs> but but it's a number, isn't it? So let's talk about some numbers. Um, we're obviously going to talk a lot about the bushfires. Uh, mm. It is still, as every leader is saying, an emergency that's not yet over. We are still in mid-January. There are still months to go with all kinds of potential horrors. But there's a slight sense that maybe the weather might get a little bit more uh, benign, a little bit more rain perhaps. Maybe the worst of it is over. We can only hope. Uh, but there's so much to pick through in terms of responses, in terms of now we're talking about royal commissions and other inquiries that are going on. And we're starting to see a fairly clear signal as to um, as to poll numbers, I suppose. Mm. It's not about the poll numbers, but at the same time, it is interesting to see reflected in those numbers some of the things that we felt that we were picking up from people, that they really were very unhappy Absolutely. And it's it's interesting because there's a consistency there between the news poll, uh, which came out at the beginning of the week, and the essential poll, which then came out a few days later, halfway through the week that was. But uh, what they're really telling us is that there's a dissatisfaction profoundly with the Prime Minister. And in fact, now on both of these polls, he's no longer the preferred Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese is. And that's Always a bit of a telltale sign of a prime minister in a little bit of trouble or under the pump because it is unusual for opposition leaders to be preferred prime ministers. It happens occasionally, but not often. What I found just as interesting was that the party votes haven't shifted nearly as much as those personal numbers for the prime minister. So in other words, there's still a sense so soon after the recent election in May of last year that voters aren't wanting to rethink their decision to re-elect the coalition to any great extent, perhaps surprisingly for some, but what they absolutely are doing is registering a, a show of no confidence, if you like, in Scott Morrison and the way that he's handled things. Uh, his, in the news poll, his dissatisfaction rating is at 59%. Now, it's hard to remember prime ministers that have hit dissatisfaction in the 60s uh, other than someone like a Julia Gillard uh, at the lowest ebb, ironically, Hugh, uh, when she was out there trying to sell the value of a carbon tax. So what it seems to indicate is that people genuinely, some issues are not personalised to a political leader, but this one seems to have been very much bound up in Scott Morrison himself. And, uh, and, and for so many reasons, Hugh, starting obviously with that holiday to Hawaii and then all the other elements that we can go through. Yeah, so th that itself I think is really interesting, particularly for a marketing man, uh, who would be more attuned to these numbers than, than most people. You know, it's interesting. There's two things out of that. One is that how does it affect him personally? You'd think, wow, that's a bit of a caning. And he mm. knows numbers well enough to know that it really is people are annoyed with him. But also we're starting to see perhaps from that uh, David Spears interview on Sunday, uh, his attempt to get a reset going and to try to, you know, get the narrative back. It's very hard for him to get the reset, isn't it? I mean, uh, at the moment you're in Sydney, I'm talking to you from Melbourne and I'm looking out at a very smoky skyline. You would be doing the same when you're wandering the streets in Sydney, I'm sure. It's it's not a climate that is easy for them to get a reset. Uh, the, the fires are on, ongoing. Even if there is substantial rain that does something to help with that, 
we're now hearing about the problems that could create for water supply. Uh, and it, it is still midsummer. So even if there is some respite from rain, you would think that the fires can then and are likely to then kick back on as summer continues. And then you've got the recovery. And however much he might be now reacting, uh, that recovery effort will be fraught with difficulties along the way and disputes between the Commonwealth and the states over funding to some extent or where priorities go. You'll get all those micro examples like you did with the handing out of money post the GFC by the Labor Party. These are all problems that he's going to face. And, Hugh, that's before we even get to the discussion about what next, if anything next, from the government when it comes to climate change policies as a response to the bushfire crisis. So before we get onto onto those policies, I'm acutely aware of how the millennial drought led John Howard in the late stages of his prime ministership to be allow himself to be persuaded by Malcolm Turnbull to get an emissions trading scheme mm. that he was going to take into that election in uh, in 2007. Uh, Kevin Rudd, of course, won the election, life moved on. But then one of the things that happened was the enormous you know, beyond drought-breaking rains, the rains that came in and flooded uh, Brisbane disastrously and which swept up through so much of Queensland, eventually refilling Lake Eyre and all the rest of it. And everyone said, oh, look, all those greenies, they said it would never rain again. We can all now go back to sleep. Um, we can afford to attack any uh, policies that might seem to be green or or uh, climate change-related policies because what do you know, it rained. Um, mm. I mean, do you think we're at the stage now where the shock has gone sufficiently deeply into the Australian psyche that it, you know, that that a rain, green fields, happy lambs gambling across, you know, sylvan paddocks um, will will not be enough to remove this urgency from the table? It's a little bit of a to be continued for me on where that's going to go. And the reason I say that is this: I do think we've shifted from 2007, or indeed if you want to go right back uh, to when some of the natural disasters problems, I think around drought, wasn't it, in 83 was a problem for Malcolm Fraser as well. I think we've shifted significantly from 07 to now 12 years on in terms of a possible return to complacency if the natural disasters are broken uh, by rain or anything else. But that's not to say that other elements in the political debate can't get in the road such that there's still a consciousness of it but not a heightened consciousness by the time we get to the end of 2020, where I think this really embeds as a political issue beyond simply one that we're talking about in the heat of the moment, so to speak, is if this comes back again next year. Now, I don't know how that works in terms of the science. You know, is, is everything so burnt that it's less likely next year or is ongoing climate change such that it continues to be likely uh, at the same time next year. But I tell you what, Hugh, I don't know if you agree with this, but politically speaking, if Australians are going through what I'm looking at out the window right now, again, this time next year with summer, and if over 2020 the government has tried to fudge it and move on from any meaningful response when it comes to climate change policy and all the rest of it, then, then absolutely it embeds and becomes a more than short or medium-term political problem, not just for Scott Morrison, frankly, but the right of politics writ large. 
And, of course, it's, that would all happen one year closer to an election. We don't know what the weather's going to do. I'm the kind of nerd who not only reads polls, among other things, although I, I have my reservations about them, but actually I, I like to read old polls. And mm. one of the things which emerges actually out of an essential poll, uh, this is You need most, to get out more, Hugh. I do need to get out more. Um, <laughs> a question... This is, I think, find fascinating. Since September uh, 2017, so this is the year when Scott Morrison marched in with a lump of coal into mm. into the parliament. The question that was put by Essential is, um, do you believe or not believe that climate change is happening and is caused by human activity? Now, what is really interesting in that is that support for the notion that climate change is happening and is caused by hu human activity has actually been declining uh, on that essential poll since September 2017. So it, in 2017, it was 64% of people said climate change is happening is caused by human activity. It's progressively gone down uh, in October 18 and March 19, in November 19, the last time they asked this, down to 61%. It's not enormous. It's pretty much on the edges of the margins of error, but it does appear to be a trend. So this was just before the fires were going off, started up again in November. If you were to be Scott Morrison, if you were to be those in the conservative right, the pro-coal elements of the, of the coalition, you'd be saying, you know what, we're winning this argument. People are less and less inclined, despite the evidence, despite the international science hardening up, to believe that climate change is happening and is causing by human activity. And I think what really might be significant is that we may have broken that trend line. And the reason I think we might is now you see Scott Morrison out there saying, there's no doubt about it. We've always said climate change causes bushfires. We've always said climate change is a real thing. You've had Karen Andrews, the science minister, come out today saying that debate is over. Um, you're really addressing coalition backbenchers and MPs at Craig Kelly's and all the rest of it, uh, the George Christensen's and all the rest of it, saying the debate's over. You know, the climate change is real. It's caused by human beings. The, the, the world is warming. It is affecting bushfires. We're seeing an attempt to reposition, you'd know better this than anyone, News Corp's editorial line to say, oh, no, 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 we, we've always, you, you know, reported the truth and the reality of climate change being a real event. Um, do you think that is evidence that a trend line that is fundamental has shifted in a, in in an irreversible way? Uh, maybe not irreversible, but certainly for the foreseeable future, I would say. Uh, I, all of this, everything that you just described then, fits into what I think is, if you like, the umbrella overarching way of thinking about where this goes next, which is this whole idea of post-materialist voting intentions versus people who vote according to self-interest and material logic. Now, a fellow back in the 70s called Inglehart uh, posited this whole idea of the rise of post-materialism, and it was the Australian Democrats and then the Greens and other minor parties that sort of followed on from this. And it was this idea that in Western societies, we have reached a point of material well-being that we are starting to worry and consider and think more about what a what he termed post-materialist things. Now, that can include the environment, it can include social justice, these sorts of principles. Civil liberties became part of it as well, uh, although that could go between the two. Now, 
that has ebbed and waned since the 70s at various moments in time. And one of the arguments, of course, has always been that when your material well-being is threatened, i.e. you lose your job or the economy writ large goes into recession or whatever it might be, the argument is that post-materials values from a voting perspective get pushed aside and people vote with their hip pocket. And, of course, that's what won Scott Morris in the last election, scaring the bejesus out of people that their hip pocket and that the economy was going to be impacted negatively by Bill Shorten. The argument at the moment, I think, which is really interesting to watch, is has climate change and therefore by extension because of the fires and the drought, has this environmental issue jumped across from just being seen as a post-materialist value, i.e. some warm and cuddly idea that will save some animals or that will try to save some trees or make sure that the planet doesn't get too hot, to a really serious material well-being impacting principle because we're looking at the smoke, people are losing homes in the fires, the economy gets ravaged because of the effect on the tourism industry, lives are being lost, our quality of life is getting massively diminished and so on it goes. Now, that to me is what we're going to find out in the coming months and it will take years whether that's happened. And if that's happened, then suddenly you've got more than just the old-fashioned, the right of politics will move the debate to the economy. You have got the left of politics, particularly if the right don't respond, able to have their own materialist well-being argument back, which is, hey, guys, this is something that affects people's daily lives. It is not about ideology. And up until now, Hugh, I know I'm ranting, but up until now, it's always been the left that were seen as the ideological ones on environmental causes, you know, like they were almost too passionate about it. Now they just look like they want action and they're frustrated. It's the right, the conservatives, the Craig Kellys, who are the ones there that look ideological in their denial of climate change. So that I think will be a really interesting area to watch. Because there's nothing quite as material as standing in the ruins of your house or your business because it's all been Absolutely. burned out. Absolutely. Uh, the counter-argument is, is that I've been looking at the, uh, the, the polling numbers for Capricornia, uh, the Queensland seat, which stretches out towards the uh, Carmichael mine, the Galilee Basin coal mine area, but also at its uh, coastal edge is the home to places like Airlie Beach, for example. It's a, it's a kind of a launching mm. point off to, to uh, the Great Barrier Reef. And the argument up there has been, hey, there's more jobs actually in tourism related to the Great Barrier Reef than there is in coal mining, which is true. Um, there's more money in coal mining because it's a capital-intensive type of game. But there's more jobs to, to be had there in Great Barrier Reef tourism. And yet in Capricornia, not only has the Labour vote completely collapsed at the last election, Labour owned this seat um, when Kevin Rudd got to power, but also the Green vote is negligible. It's down at about 4.5%. So mm. when you get to that material thing, whatever the arguments were, in a seat that sits at the door of the Great Barrier Reef, Plainly, the argument is not convincing people in that area that the Greens have got the answer uh, to improve their material well-being in terms of jobs and so on on the reef. And that's part of this point of whether that changes between material and post-material with where these issues sit. Some of the personnel and some of the organisations arguing the cause probably need to change as well because otherwise they are continued to rightly or wrongly, by the way, they continue to be, if you like, tainted a little bit by ideological arguments as they are perceived to be of the past. I tell you what, though, I know we're going to have to break in a moment, Hugh, but I want in this podcast at some stage to be allowed a second rant, which is about this whole issue of getting 
credits to be able to meet our emissions reduction targets. I mean, this is red hot at the moment. That we rant really is, have to talk about that it. That rant will have to wait for a second. We're going to take a quick break, uh, PVO, <laughs> back in, a, in just a sec. Husey, we have a problem. The podcast. My name's Dave Hughes, and like everyone else, I've got problems. All the best bits from the hilarious Network 10 TV show. <laughs> it's not right. Find it wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 32 of The Professor and the Hack, and I cut off the great Professor PVO <laughs> there as you're about to launch a rant. Rant oh. on, brother. Rant on. All this argument from the government about how we're meeting and beating uh, Paris targets frustrates the bejesus out of me. I mean, let me just tell you why. Okay, it's a 26 to 28% reduction in emissions on 2005 levels. There you go. They say we're going to meet and beat it. That's probably true. Here's why. We get roughly halfway to that target and got roughly halfway to that target during the Labor years when they introduced a carbon tax, a much maligned carbon tax. We got halfway there. The remainder of the time, with the coalition coming to power, we've made some slight improvement, 1% or 2% of the overall 26 to 28, but that's it, no more. We've basically flatlined for years in reducing our emissions. But we still get there because we've got all these carryover credits from the Kyoto Agreement. Now, what are they? They're not that we did a great job reducing emissions back then. We got all sorts of bonuses because we were recalcitrant before eventually signing on and the world gave us all sorts of exceptionalism from what everybody else had to do. Including so, the right to increase our emissions and exactly. still meet our targets. So, in other words, we only get there, Hugh, because of A, getting halfway there under Labor in actual reductions, and B, having then flatlined in reductions during the coalition years because they then use all of these credits, which are, if you like, fake. I've got two things to say about that. The first is it's kind of the equivalent of doing well in an exam that you have got the answers on or for in advance, and then you've got to suddenly do the next exam. How are you going to go then? You didn't study, you didn't know anything, you wrote, learnt the answers. It's going to make the next exam even harder. The reason I say that is because, fine, we'll be able to walk around chest puffed up, we met our Paris Agreement targets. But then the world will eventually at some point have a consensus on the next round of targets. Well, Hugh, we start that approach to the next round of targets having only got halfway to the Paris targets because the other half were made up by these credits. So how the hell are we going to get to the next target starting that far off the Paris target, which we're walking around giving ourselves a pat on the back about. So anytime you hear a minister or the prime minister say, we're meeting and beating our Paris targets, every listener should think, yeah, only because you're basically doing the equivalent of cheating on an exam. Wow. Okay. But don't worry because the Prime Minister has told us that he's going to be evolving emissions policy. Um, this is what he told David Spears and uh, he... What does that even mean? Well, <laughs> this, is, this is the question because uh, it, it, it's all right. He now believes that climate change is real. He says he's always believed it. Even when he was carrying that coal there into Parliament, he was believing in it and he was believing in the science that says that climate change is creating conditions for more ferocious bushfires and that he always believed that this was the case. Uh, but now he's going to evolve um, these emissions targets. Uh, but what does that mean, as you say? So what he said in the press conference on the same day after the David Spears interview on Sunday. He said, we will always be taking up the opportunities of measures that enable us to achieve lower emissions. 
but lower emissions at the same time as we stay true to the policy I took to the last election, and that was to ensure we get the balance right, to get our emissions down without putting a tax on people, without increasing their electricity prices, without removing the industries upon which they and their communities and their towns and their regions rely on for the very livelihoods. So it is a balanced policy. He used the word balance four times in that answer Mm. and promised to ensure that we protect Australians from reckless targets from reckless policies that can destroy their livelihoods and their incomes. So what he seems to be saying is that the evolution of emissions policy is, yes, we'll bring down emissions if that's possible to do, uh, so long as it is painless for everyone. No one has to suffer anything in the name of reducing emissions further. Is, Is that what we're to draw from this? I suppose, yeah, but I think it is also him buying time to some extent, don't you think? He's 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 giving people some rhetorical hope, talking about an evolution. He's then not wanting to lose the so-called base by saying, I'm not going to do it in a reckless way, it's about balance. And the whole time he and his advisors are sitting around trying to work out what they do next in terms of how far they can take this in which direction without getting pulled in the wrong direction by the other side of the debate. So I wonder whether the use of the word balance is um, is kind of narrow casting. Not, so, so it's broadcasting on one level, narrow casting on mm. another level, and that is to his own party room. And he's basically signalling to them, look, we need to recognise and stop mucking around and fess up and be seen to fess up to the fact that global warming is real or otherwise we look like a bunch of gooses and we will wander to our doom. However, balance, folks, um, I promise you that I will sit at the midpoint between making that acknowledgement but also ensuring uh, for the conservative wings of the party that I'm not going to do anything to scare any of the horses, particularly in Queensland. Well, he's he's got to be prepared to go a little bit harder than that in my view. I mean, he he has – we've often talked about how post his – unexpected election win, he has more authority than any Liberal leader since John Howard. Well, John Howard uh, was the last Liberal leader to be able to successfully propose an emissions trading scheme as a policy. And I know there are doubts whether he was ever really up for it or whether he would have even implemented it if he'd won the 2007 election. But he still had the authority to do it. Uh, And the climate if you like, was was we talked about this earlier in this podcast, somewhat similar in the direction to where we are now uh, because of drought at the time when he did it. So Scott Morrison's got to show some leadership. I mean, Scotty from marketing never wants leadership. You know, he's too busy about thinking about the next ad campaign uh, when you talk to the people from the PR division. But Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, needs to show leadership, even if Scotty from marketing is interested in... So, so, who, do, so who have we got? Have we got Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, the one that he's now presenting to himself, that he acted decisively, he did this unprecedented uh, call-out uh, of the um, of the Defence Force Reserves to try and help out um, in, in the bushfires? We could talk about that a little bit. Or have we got Scott, Scotty from marketing, who essentially is saying... Of course, we agree with all this stuff, but here's the coded dog whistle language. The evolution of our policies is not going to involve anything actually changing. Or if it does, it's so much at the margins, it's not going to make any difference because a lot of the base don't want any changes in this area. Yeah, look, part of this issue, and there's no time for this now, but part of this issue is this narrow cast base. It existed during Howard's time as well, but it's gotten worse on two fronts. One is 
that it's become a greater and greater proportion of party membership as the mass party model slowly dies and fewer and fewer Australians bother to join a political party. So the ones at the margins, at the fringe, and in the case of the Liberal Party, further out to the reactionary right, have more clout internally. So therefore, that clout gives them more authority and therefore they get more listened to by a Prime Minister, particularly one that's more interested in marketing than leadership. But the other problem, uh, I guess, that goes hand in glove with that is that those elements that are more reflective of that base than perhaps other members of parliament are, are able to get a bigger platform through the nature of 24-hour news and the social media age we're in. Uh, and, and that form of change to journalism makes them louder in their voice. Whereas once upon a time, they were you know, like the proverbial person screaming in the middle of the forest about things. Uh, nobody really had to care because we couldn't hear them, whereas now they cause instability by virtue of jumping on Sky News or whatever other platform and just saying what the likes of Craig Kelly will often say. So these are problems that Scott Morrison faces that are exacerbated from Howard's time, uh, but added to them being worse than they were in Howard's time, I would argue that Scott Morrison is less substantive than Howard was as well, which we talked about in the last podcast. Yeah, so no it's, it's a terrible mix. And I also wonder whether part of that broadcasting, if you, again you go back to Queensland because it was Queensland that uh, won the election fundamentally for the coalition um, and, the, <clears throat> and the collapse of the Labor vote in Queensland is a, is a matter plainly of concern to Anthony Albanese who mm. pretty much camped up, camped out up in Queensland in the hope that he could start to turn that around. But if you look at the Queensland results, calamitous for Labor... But they weren't an enormous endorsement of the coalition in primary vote terms. What we saw was a huge increase in votes for all kinds of right of centre, whether it was One Nation, whether it was Clive Palmer's United Australia, whether it was uh, the Catter Party, whether it was Fraser Anning's party, remember him, uh, the <laughs> National Conservative Party, whatever he called it, but they, but they got thousands of votes in some electorates. So it was only the flow of those preferences back up into the coalition that delivered such monumental two-party uh, results. But one would presume that a guy like Scott Morrison is looking at Queensland and is saying, um, we have to be careful because one of those beasts on our right could just get big enough to take us out in a couple mm. of seats um, if we're seen as being, um, really as doing anything uh, on emissions more than we're doing. Well and you make such a good point because underlying it is the polarized nature of the Australian electorate these days and I would bring western australia into it they're not quite as bad in that construct as as queensland is but they're part of the polarization and you see bits of this in the united states between you know central america versus the west and the east coast you know all all red republican through the guts of the country and then blue democrat on the coastal fringes on either side. In Canada, you know, the the East Coast versus the West Coast uh, voted even more polarised in, in the way that they uh, elected Justin Trudeau just at their recent election. Here in Australia, and, and in a way this is part of what politically uh, the, the right of politics in particular, but Albanese as well, as you mentioned, are, are grappling with, you know, Queensland, Labor only got six of 30 seats or thereabouts. They only won four of 16 over in WA. Yet where the fires are at their most devastating, New South Wales and Victoria, and then I'll add South Australia with Kangaroo Island and and just let's throw Tasmania in for the sake of it. Actually, no, let's leave Tasmania out. It was um, those three states, those southern states, as well as on the east coast, Labor won 57 seats, I think it was, to the coalition's 43. 
And so you, this fire season is reinforcing attitudes in that part of the country, but perhaps not shifting them in those parts of the country which won the coalition the election anyway. Uh, so this is something that both major parties are, are grappling with. It's a polarised nation. It's it, you know I make no apologies on this podcast for trying to convey politics as political operators see it, which is all about winning elections, what mm. will lose you votes, what will gain you votes. And in a sense, that conversation we've just had is really we're becoming the Scotties from marketing. We're seeing it in, in political <laughs> marketing terms, etc. Well, we're examining the Scotties from marketing. Don't, don't do that to us, Hugh. <laughs> but but I, so, 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 so I guess on the final question, are we going to see emerging from this disastrous summer anything of substance that is going to change Australia's position in the years ahead that is going to make us more effective on the global stage where plainly all the results ultimately have to be won on the, on the global stage. Are we going to be better citizens in the world in our own interest, if not the world's, as a consequence of this disastrous uh, summer? In a word, yes, I think really? we will. Well, yeah, uh, let me depress you now. Yes, but to what extent is the question, right? We'll, we'll be better global citizens because something, however small, will change, which will be better than what we are now. But whether it becomes nothing more than a lesser of evils as opposed to something significant, that's where the jury for me is still out. Uh, and I suspect that it's perhaps unlikely to be as significant as, as a lot of people would like because there's going to be a, a a time lag before something meaningful might eventuate and by then if we're out of the fire season we'll have to see where we're at. Can I can I quickly throw this in, Hugh? I know we're almost out of time, but I, I just have to say this. I tweeted it uh, today when we're, when we're delivering this podcast. This to me sums up where the government, the coalition is at at the moment when it comes to thinking about the environment. It's the opening paragraph of an article uh, that appeared as an exclusive in the Australian newspaper, which is a disclaimer I, I write for as well. I just think this sums up what's wrong with the way that the coalition and the government think about environmental issues. Senior coalition figures have been discussing how to bolster the government's environmental credentials, wait for it, to address a growing tide of voters in blue ribbon liberal seats who want stronger action on climate change. So they're not discussing how to bolster the government's environmental credentials for the sake of the bloody environment. They're doing it to try to address people who are concerned about the environment. In other words, they don't care about the issue. They care about getting those voters back. Well, here's a hot tip. Maybe doing something on the issue might get back voters who are concerned about the bloody issue. So maybe it's not about marketing. Maybe it is about being a good global citizen. <laughs> and uh, the image that uh, I think went round the world, I think people in Australia underestimate how much this went round the world, was the uh, fit young uh, visiting tennis player who was mm. on the point of winning her game, by the way. It wasn't, yeah, as, she was if she was, it wasn't as if she was bunging it on because she was losing, uh, unable to continue because of the smoke, and later saying in an interview with CNN that all the players are pissed off a pissed is her word, not pissed off because it's the, she was using the American phrasing there and disappointed because they felt they'd be better looked after. That as an image uh, that plays into every sports break in every news bulletin in Europe and in the United States mm. uh, sends a signal about us in a way that is very hard for us to put right. And um, anyway, 
It's going to take a lot of marketing, Hugh, to fix that. <laughs> or even perhaps some substance. Who knows? <laughs> we, hold our, we hold our breath, always dangerous, although sometimes wise, unless you've got the right mask. Um, <laughs> Peter Van Onselen, the professor, uh, what a delight it is as always. We'll talk again soon. Till then. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.